I'm Betsy Reed, and this is The Discomfort Practice, where I talk to creatives, activists, leaders, scientists, and a host of others about discomfort, about the role it's played in their lives, who they are and what they do in the world, and the value of discomfort in helping us move forward as a society. Discomfort is just the edge of your comfort zone, and on the other side are superpowers. So settle yourself in, and let's get uncomfortable. It's a pleasure today to welcome to The Discomfort Practice, Maggie Murphy. I met Maggie on a panel that I was chairing at a festival a couple of years ago and was just enthralled by her story, her energy, and what she's doing in the world. So Maggie is the general manager of Lewis Football Club. Lewis is a fan-owned club in England, and they are the first in the world to pay its male and female players equally. It still blows my mind that that is still a first. But they've also made it their mission as a club to campaign on issues around equality, calling for parity in prize money for the FA Cup. Because if you pay attention to such things, you know that there's a lot more money for men's teams than female teams. Lewis's women's side finished eighth in the second tier last season and made headlines in 2017 as they became the first club known to pay men's and women's players equally, giving their first teams the same budgets. Their men's side play in England's seventh tier, while their women are among the top 20 clubs in the country. And recently, in December 2020, they launched a six-figure deal with clothing brand Lyle & Scott to be on the front of their shirts. And that's the biggest deal for a club not affiliated with a Premier League side. So this is quite a big headline. And Maggie told uh, an article that I came across about this that Lewis is trying to be an exemplary club in everything they do. We think there are a lot of things about football that can be done differently and better. Lyle and Scott were really keen to support us because of what we do off the pitch as well as on the pitch. And that is why Maggie is on this podcast, because it's about creating productive discomfort in some areas. So before Maggie became the general manager at Lewis FC in July 2019, she worked in various public affairs and advocacy roles in anti-corruption and human rights at organizations like Amnesty International. But this represents a total career change for her, which obviously changing careers is uncomfortable and it's its own right. So we're going to talk about how discomfort in sports, discomfort around social inequality, and just discomfort in society can be used to create real change. Welcome, Maggie. Thank you so much, Betsy. That was a lovely intro. I'm kind of blushing and uh, <laughs> feeling slightly uncomfortable. So <laughs> it's a good way to start. You're not the first and you will not be the last <laughs> to say that. I know we all just feel like, oh my gosh, oh, look at your shoes. But your mom would be proud, Maggie. Your mom would be proud. <laughs> so first question I always ask all of my guests is, what's an uncomfortable moment that has changed your life, that shaped who you are in the world? It's, it's, it's so interesting because I think that I can immediately think of lots and lots of um, uh, uncomfortable situations or uncomfortable um, times. I've never had one of those massive, massive, okay, world's fallen apart moments. Um, but I think there's a couple that I now realize are significant several years on. Um, one type that jumps out for me is in particular... Um, there was a particular job, you know, I was probably about 26, 27. So, uh, you know, just started on the career and I was working in a human rights organization. Um, and I think when you're that age, you're just trying to get a job, mm. hold a job, get your first promotion. Yeah. Um, and you're not really so attuned to the environment because you just need to work. You need to prove that you can work in an environment, you know, in an office, like with, mm. with colleagues and to achieve things. So, um, at this particular place, I remember feeling like the culture from the top, from, from the head of the organization was pretty toxic right from day one. Um, the, the boss was racist, homophobic, sexist, misogynistic. Like you can, you can kind of add whatever you like to the list. And for me, obviously it was my, it was kind of my first job. And um, I was like, is this what it's like all the time? And mm. I, I actually tolerated and kind of built a shield a protective shield I've got very thick skin and I was able to build a shield around myself but there was one particular instance where I had done this 
really good piece of work. I'm proud to say like I had done this excellent piece of work. Um, I'd really worked hard at it. I'd created this collaboration with other organizations and we managed to pull off this great thing. It doesn't even really matter what it was. It was just like, I know that it was amazing. And the next day I, we had a couple of interns in the office and I took the interns um, out for like brunch to say thank you because we'd been working until after midnight on this thing. And when I walked into the office, probably about 11 a.m. after I, I personally, I was on about the minimum wage, by the way, I treated the interns to, to <laughs> breakfast. Um, my boss just said, well, let's talk about all the things that went wrong. Ugh. And at that point, I realized that we weren't aligned. Like this wasn't a thing. He had dis like, frankly, he had disrespected me. He hadn't recognized the achievements because, you know, yeah, of course, there were a couple of things that went wrong but actually we'd had this huge success probably the best thing that the organization had done in years wow. and I just felt like in that moment there wasn't that uh, that disrespect was something that for me was like okay enough's enough uh, and probably once or twice in my career since then there's been a time when with a particular boss or with a manager there's been that element of uh disrespect when my values have been compromised that I've been like no do you know what that's it. So that very day I started um, looking for another job and I had a new job at Amnesty International actually within a couple of weeks. So um, at the time it was quite terrifying because again, I think I was, I still felt like I was young. I felt like I needed a job. Um, but when it was about my values being compromised, essentially, um, mm. we'd worked so hard and, and like there's a recognition and a respect that is so important to, to me. But a lot of people can probably relate to that because it, it's not necessarily about being young and at the start of your career. I mean, it doesn't get any easier as you progress through your career. There's always a reason to stay if you're uncomfortable, you know, it's sort of like, ah, the paycheck or ah, the seniority or ah, just being in a job, the security of it. So it's interesting that you took that discomfort as something is not aligned, something needs mm. to change rather than just being in it or being numb to it or, yeah, or numbing I out. I definitely can't do that. So I think for me, um, I lost respect for him. Mm. And so if I don't respect the person that I'm working for, well, I think it's just, it's not, it's not really going to work. Um, and I think also for me, maybe linked to that a little bit is, but in a slightly different situation is, um, I, I thrive off that discomfort. I want to be out of my comfort comfort zone. I'm looking for the thrill, the rush, the kind of uh, slightly frightening energy that comes from being on the cusp of something and, and pushing mm. yourself. Um, so, so I guess secondarily, anytime I've been in a situation where things have got routine or, you know, I, I loved my time at Transparency International. I have all the respect in the world for the organization. I definitely did not have any um, serious issues like that one that I've just described with any of my <laughs> bosses or, or, or colleagues that I worked with there. But after, you know, a few years of being the main person in the organization that was uh, doing global advocacy at the G20 or the UN, OEC, people, you know, this was like the most exciting job that loads of people could think of. And for me, I just lost the love. I was like, I know how to do this now. <laughs> uh, why did you lose the love? What, was it just the long-termism of that type of change? Like when you're working with the UN, you have to be very patient. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I th yeah. I think that is, yeah, you have to be very, very patient, but I'm used to that. And, and actually over the course, I was having these wins that, that would take a long time, but I was actually seeing these wins. And I think that it, it, it is a, you have to be all in, I think. And I was all in when it was scary and terrifying and I was learning something. Mm. When it got to the point where I kind of knew all the people at the G around the G20 table, like literally I'd be going over to Italy saying hi, I'd ha be having a beer with the guy from Canada. I, do you know, like it, it, yeah. I kind of next thing was like, I, I need, I need to be pushed. Otherwise I'll become too comfortable. And like lots of my mm. friends and colleagues, um, I, I could see that there was younger colleagues coming through and they were so thirsty for that kind of experience. And I was like, do you know what? Let me get out of their way or let me help um, get them to where I am. So the last year or so, 18 months that I was there, I was opening up the door for the junior colleague coming in who had that thirst mm. and excitement that I had previously. And I was so excited to give that person everything that I knew, knowing that therefore things would be in good hands. And then I could be like, okay, what's my next 
where, where what's next what's like what's going to make yeah. me scared again what's the uh, next edge of my comfort zone time yeah. to move on uh you really do fit right into this podcast because <laughs> it's it's an entrepreneurial mindset it's also a personality thing isn't it like you you have this campaigning background and I can mm. feel probably everybody else can hear just the passion and the fire and you're always looking for a challenge which actually makes me go okay so how did you end up being the manager of a football club? You know, sort of yeah. going from campaigning into managing a football club. And it's kind of obvious having reflected on the mission of Lewis, but how did you end up there? Yeah. Okay. So I think this probably goes back to when I'm like four years old and um, kicking a football in the garden with my brothers. Um, and uh, just I just loved the, the game when I was growing up I wasn't allowed to play it that much but every time I was always a sporty kid at school so I would be you know put into any sports team or whatever um but football really got me I loved it it was like physical and like aggressive and unlike with netball where you always <laughs> there's someone blowing a whistle because you got too close and I'm like I just want to grab that ball <laughs> I like, I'm a soccer player too I say soccer because the American That's fine. Be like, yeah yeah I, I grew up playing soccer and always getting in trouble playing in an all-girls league because I grew up playing with boys and yeah. I just then hit the girls league and they didn't know what to hit them and ah uh, yeah just, you know, I'm that, playing clean <laughs> yeah and that that physicality was like good for me and in any case I had like three brothers and one sister so we were mm. probably all rough and tumble anyway at home um but I guess and so you know as soon as I could I was playing for um a football team but there were no girls football teams where I was growing up and mm -hmm. I was naturally probably asking lots of why questions to my parents like why do my brothers go off every Saturday to play football why can't I um and, and you know but I was able to play for the adults team I started playing for the for the only women's team I grew up on an island so the only football mm -hmm. women's football team female football team on the island was an adults one I started playing for them when I was 13. Oh wow. So, um, so, so I guess throughout my entire career, and I've spent a long time living overseas, whether, you know, a couple of years in different parts of Africa and like Germany and the Netherlands mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, all over the place. And I've always found a women's football team to play in. Like one of my favorite memories is playing in Tanzania, uh, and winning the national cup that, that, you know, uh. I've always, people think that women's football doesn't really exist, but it does. It just doesn't get that <laughs> yeah. visibility. So so I had this wonderful, like, so I was playing football back home and then I, you know, went to university and I uh, was captain of the, the team there. And so I've always played football, but it's always just been on the side. Yeah. And, you know, I, I got good grades and I went to university and to, to Oxford University and like did all this stuff and started my career in human rights and international relations. And I was curious about the world and I wanted to travel mm. um, and make an impact, et cetera, et cetera. It sounds so cliched. Um, but um. But, we need people like you. Yeah. <laughs> well, well. So then I was doing this, and I loved my work in in the human rights world. I absolutely loved it. I loved it in the anti-corruption world. Like I really did feel like I was um, doing good things, and I was learning as well, and and all of that. But um, I guess there were a few things that happened that really made me take stock. Um, I, I'm always a natural critiquer, so I do sometimes think the 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 um, the, the world around. NGOs and nonprofits, I think it needs a little bit more critique and a, a little bit more accountability. And I'm always aware of some of the balances there. Um, and I'm also aware of, you know, your personal connection to, to things and drive. And um, I, I'm, maybe I'm not being particularly eloquent, but it's, um, I think for me, when the FIFA corruption scandal hit a few years ago, I was so angry I kind of knew it was happening everyone kind of knew it was happening but this FIFA corruption scandal hit where you had Sepp Blatter you know this person whose whose job is to bring football to the world and by the way he was this guy that said that the best way that women's football could progress would be if the women wore tighter tops and shorter shorts Oof. so I already had it in for him anyway and then he presides <laughs> literally presides over this massive corruption scandal mm -hmm. and I knew that budgets that were going to women's football from having lived all around the world and playing football I knew that the women's football budgets were always the budgets that got stolen first yeah. I knew that they had nothing like we had nothing and when I say around the world, I'm talking in England as well, yeah. not just Tanzania or Rwanda or Senegal, wherever else I was. Mm. Um, and so I was so angry. Like, uh, I, I, you know, you can feel it in my voice, I guess. I can feel it. I can feel it myself. <laughs> I'm just like, God damn, that was, yeah, like, yeah that was, oh, that FIFA scandal pissed me off too. Right. I was a female soccer player and like, 
hey, man, the Women's World Cup, U.S. just won it four times. Do I have to keep repeating myself that women are good at football? Yeah, and and I think it was just like this... Um, I was angry about it. I was working in an anti-corruption organization because I could understand and read some of the money laundering mm. stuff that was happening. And I was just quite astute to it. And I realized that the people running football did not care about me. They did not care about my teammates. They did not care about uh, women's football at all. Um, and I figured that that kind of had to change. And And on the sidelines, therefore, I was still doing my job, but I started working with a bunch of women that I'd met and connected around the world. Um, you know, these incredible people that had started kind of this initiative called Equal Playing Field, which is now an organization of a few years old. I'm holding up my water bottle. (laughs) Yeah. And we had decided to kind of do something about it. Not quite sure what we were still figuring things out. Um, But we decided, first of all, to do something incredible that no one could take away from us as being like this B grade, like this uh, brackets women uh, type thing. So, um, yeah, so we climbed to the top of Mount Kilimanjaro. There was we there was women from around twenty different countries. There's about thirty of us. Um, Wait, and can we say how high Kilimanjaro is? Because it's not <laughs> like you just sort of took a little stroll up a mountain. You hiked. Yeah, posts, and this is like this is something people train for for months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It was like six or seven days um, climb to get to the top. It is. Uh, uh, I remember in meters, it's five thousand seven hundred and fourteen meters, wow. which I think is I don't know about feet, but maybe seventeen thousand feet, something yeah, like that. Yeah, just do it times three, basically. Right. And okay. So around yeah. about that. Um, so you know, we climbed to the top, um, and then we brought a ball and we set up our goalposts that we brought and uh, set out a full-size pitch and played full 90 minutes. Man, <laughs> I thought that I was going to be substituted <laughs> off and I was like, they still didn't hold up my number and I was like, oh, I've got to keep going. <laughs> Playing 90 minutes. At, like, I grew up at high altitude, but we're talking like 5,000 feet. This is 17,000 feet yeah. and playing football for 90 minutes. Yeah, I can't even imagine what your lungs felt like. I mean, it wasn't seven days. <laughs> it wasn't a pretty game. It was nil nil in the end. So, um, yeah, it was really tough. Ball went fast though. <laughs> There's no air yeah. up there. Um, it was yeah, that was a proper experience. And obviously, when the final whistle went, um, we knew that we had set a Guinness World Record, and we all kind of cheered as though we both teams had won ten nil or something. Um, yeah. But you know, hugging and like it was just it was. Uh, a really wonderful experience, but something that was, um, we told a lot of stories through doing that. We connected mm-hmm. a lot of people. We learned a lot. And I think that what we thought was going to be this one-off thing ended up actually uniting a group of women from around the world, Foot, um, you know, players. Uh, we had former pros. We had grassroots players. We had coaches, referees, mm-hmm. uh, administrators. And since then, we've kind of grown and grown each year and, and done, we've, I think we've got about four or five Guinness World Records underneath um, underneath us now. So it, we're just planning what we're doing next year and in the year after. So mm-hmm. that, so I guess... <laughs> that was a bit of a tangent, but I was doing that on the sidelines of my job, which was already full on and stressful. Um, but that eventually, as you can tell, connected me with Lewis FC and they kind of approached me to see whether I would be interested in running a football club. Of course, I, this is not part of my life plan. Um, this was not <laughs> this was not something I ever thought I'd be doing. Um, I did know about Lewis FC for two reasons. One was... Um, that I'd seen when we came back down off the mountain, it was only a couple of months later that Lewis FC brought in their equality stance, Mm. like splitting the revenue equally between the men's and the women's side. And that for me was like, yes, finally, a football club that doesn't just talk about valuing female players, but actually is putting their money where where their mouth is. And Mm. so that for me was special. But the other reason I knew about it, which is kind of a cute part of the story that, um, that I've mentioned to a few people is uh, Lewis FC and the, and the ground, which is called the dripping pan. This was the first ground that I ever played in for my home team, the Isle of Wight, playing against Lewis. Um, I think it was in 1997. And I, I was still, I was 13 and I was too young to play. So I was out there under somebody else's name illegally. Um, <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> so awesome. I, re- I know. So I remembered the ground. I remembered the club. Um, I remember that, that the club really well. And I remember when they took the equality stance, I was like, hang on a sec. Is that that football club? You know, I must have played her a couple of times around that age. Yeah. Um, is that that football club I played against back in the 90s? Wow, good on them. Like, fantastic. But I remember thinking, I will probably never go. I'll never end up there. But um, 
what I did was I became an owner. Like anyone around mm. the world can become an owner of the football club. And for me, at the time, I was, yeah, like I say, I was like, I'll never go there. But here, take my, it was like 30 pounds a year. You know, oh, it's, wow. it's gone up to 40 pounds a year, but it's like, take my money. I back you. I want you to know that I see you. I hear you here. Take my money. Mm. Um, and yeah, when they approached me a couple of years later, I guess that just shows how, how quickly I kind of shifted my brain and my mindset and that anger that I felt around the FIFA corruption scandal, which had been building for a long time. It wasn't just the FIFA corruption scandal. I was seeing these inequalities and this, you might need to beat me out, but shithousery. <laughs> like, oh no, we're swearing. It's season two. <laughs> Go for it. So I'd seen all of this for years and years and years. I can give you a million examples of Mm. The stupidity like inequalities and just really mindless stuff as well so anyway mm. uh, that that meant that I felt ready to uh, channel my anger and I think that for me is like a bit of a a thing that I've learned is that I think probably to make genuine impact and genuine change you've got to be really angry about something mm. and uh, and there's lots of social issues in the world um and I don't think you can be angry about lots of things at once and be effective. And for now, this is the thing that I'm really angry about and I want to try and do something about it. So yeah. it involved moving to a little town um, <laughs> in the south of England, which was, a, again, maybe a bit of a discomfort. I didn't know what it would be like. It involved a pay cut. You know, there's not that much money in football. Yeah. Um, and it involved like lots of challenges. But I thought, you know, this, I can do something here. And I feel like there's there's like I, I can throw myself into this like this is this is a this is a thing and we can do good stuff here so yeah lo- it. maybe is that's a really long-winded answer for no it's sort of up here but yeah kismet it's it's I don't know it's alignment it, because mm-hmm. it does bring together so many elements of you and I think it's about continue following your path and then pay attention when things aren't in alignment because you mm-hmm, talked about mm-hmm. the discomfort of leaving other roles and just remember that you have to say no to something to be open to saying yes to the right things yeah. I think this points to like if something doesn't fit leave because the right thing awaits you I think that's yeah. a, a really good way to bring that together I think you I can be it. compromised sometimes and I think that mm. if you're comp- if like something if one of your values has been compromised then you're not going to be happy and mm-hmm. um and every day right now I mean talk about discomfort like every day I feel discomfort because there's so much I want to do there's so much I'm trying to do there's so much work to do there's not that much resource but so every day is quite stressful but I you know and of course every so often I wish that there was less to do but I think that <laughs> you know it's, it's you just you just got to like I don't mind because we there's a purpose to this and it's it sits with me well my values and is it sort of a mission that really does filter down to all the players because you have I mean just talk about the the structure of Lewis FC you've Mm. got a lot of teams a Mm. lot of players a lot of a lot of fans we'll get to that but does this sort of guiding mission really filter down to all the levels I think that's um that's a brilliant question because I think that for a while it's kind of maybe just sat at the top of the club so you know in terms of the structure we have um we have four junior teams on the women's side so we have a a kind of like a reserve squad a development squad uh and then under 18s 16s 14s and then on the men's side we have a a junior team that's that's um very successful an under 18s team and then obviously the two first teams on top Mm -hmm. um so you're talking like you know was that like more than 150 players or something yeah that's a lot like you know there's a lot more than 100 players at least anyway so um I think that at the beginning, the equality stance um, was seen to be like the women's side of things, but actually we've got really interested, engaged, motivated male players who Mm. uh, get it and talk quite eloquently about it as well. And I think that from there, it filters down. I think think that we're still working on it because it's not really about like, let's say, for me, it's not really about equality it's about culture so I think we're trying to create this culture where we are brave and we talk about the right things and we take these ethical stances and I do think that our junior players understand that um 
they are attuned to the things we are trying to do well and right. Ultimately, they're footballers. So they want to play at the best level and they want to play in a place that treats and respects them and values them. Uh, And I would never hold back a player that would want to go and play for a team higher up or or whatever. Um, But yeah, for me, it's more about creating the culture, which is questioning, but brave Mm -hmm. and, and and a positive culture where we value people. And I think we value players as people not Mm. just as players which I think is a is a culture shift from lots of football clubs where it's like you're in you're out like yeah you know perform or get lost and I'm kind of like well why aren't they performing is there something going on and like can we figure out what that is and Mm. um yes there's a cultural thing that I guess we're trying to create there yeah because I guess in sports and I've seen this with people who've worked with really elite levels they they kind of are treated like Pokemon cards (laughs) not to sort of diminish the greatness of great players but yeah they're just they're kind of chips to be traded and played by people in charge people with money and I imagine that value that culture that you've created of equality of valuing people no matter what their gender does filter through and does make people hopefully feel more valued as players yeah I think so I think when they're in the door then they suddenly then then they're more likely to get it and I'm talking mainly from like the first team women's side I think that um whenever we've had a player come and trial or when we have new players coming in they feel it almost instantly we have a brand new goalkeeper from America um this season and she said um that it was instant she felt welcome she felt like the other players were good people that she she loves the club and for me that was really powerful because that might not have been the case a year ago or 18 months ago when a new player came mm. in. So it's that we've worked on really, really hard. Um, but, you know, most players are still coming to try to play at the highest level they can. And so for that, I can't just talk about culture. I, I've got to talk about our resources and our facilities mm-hmm. and the standard of our coaching um, because it, there's, there's so much that will get us somewhere. But we, like for me, one of my main challenges is how do I... Um, we have to perform on the pitch because we've taken this bold stance because if we take a bold mm-hmm. stance and fail, we're letting down humanity or something, you know, like we're, yeah. but if we manage to prove that we can succeed, then we're proving concepts. We're proving concept that equality actually works. And I think that sits heavy with me sometimes, mm-hmm. um, that kind of burden, no one's put that burden on me, but that's just what I feel sometimes. It's the same with anything like fair trade products. They have to be at least as good as mm. non-fair trade products. So you're not just doing it for the the philanthropy of it. This yeah. is about being a good football club and being well yep. managed. Yep. So yeah, I can imagine. It's about running a business, basically. Yes. Which yep. brings us to fans because you're yep. not just running a business. A, you're a fan-owned club. But B, fans are loyal or there are sometimes a vocal minority mm-hmm. who let you know that they're uncomfortable with the changes that are happening because of your mission, perhaps, or mm-hmm. even perhaps how you manage just as the manager. So how is the discomfort that maybe you caused to fans productive? And maybe there's a bit of discomfort that they cause that confirms that you're going the right direction or helps to inform you. I don't know. I'm just leaving it open. Talk about (laughs) fans and discomfort. Yeah, I guess this is what makes sports clubs unique because you have this constant feedback. Um, For us at Lewis, like one of the reasons we've been able to take on some of these big, bold stances. And by the way, aside from our equality stance, we do a lot of work on trying to to, um, end gambling ads in football because Uh. it's quite insidious how prevalent gambling adverts and problem gamblers especially amongst children have become it over the last 10 years really um, yeah so that's that. so there's lots of other social issues that we also take a, a stance on mm. um and that's because we are this community-owned club so we have about 1600 owners in about 35 different countries wow. and um you know obviously uh, the largest chunk are from lewis itself um but it, you know, and those are people that are really invested in the town. And I always say that the town and the football club, they have a symbiotic relationship. So, you know, if one's doing well, the other one's doing well. If, hmm. you know, if there's a bit of a, um, you know, it's just one of those things. And that's partly because we have so many volunteers in the club that are running things like the turnstiles or um, even our groundsman is a volunteer who does our wow. pitch uh, and keeps it to such a high standard. Um, and so, you know, it's it's interlinked. You can't separate out the two. and you know, the football club has actually been here since 1885. Mm. So you're going back a, a long, long way. Um, 
It's a lot of heritage. Yeah, mm. it is. It is. And there's therefore there is a lot of people that have been intricately linked to themselves well before I was here. And they will be probably long after I, I go. Um, and mm. I think that's the interesting element is that for me in my role, I am a kind of custodian for a for an amount of time. I don't know how long that will be. I love being here and I love the job. And it, as long as I'm, I don't know, pushed out of my comfort zone, <laughs> as long as it becomes comfortable, you know, as soon as it becomes comfortable, maybe I'll be off, but <laughs> there's plenty of things to get done first. Um, you know, but I have to acknowledge that people that work here are kind of not, um, like I'll, I'll do everything for the club, but there's other people that might be questioning my motives. And so I think that, you know, you, it's a human trait, isn't it, to listen to the small minority of people? Yeah, of course. And, yeah. and so I think that I was getting a little bit of criticism and I didn't really know why when I first arrived. Um, I, and I still don't really know what it was about, but that was the first time that I'd kind of dealt with, I don't know, fans or supporters that were challenging me on on, on various things. I can't even remember exactly what, but um, yeah, I think, I think that on specifically around things like equality I think what I was seeing last year was uh, the women's team were doing pretty well at the beginning of the season and the men's team weren't um mm. it's, it's not linked but that's just the way that the season started and because the men's team were not doing very well you could start to hear fans and people kind of saying that it was because of equality like <sighs> the men's team are doing badly because of equality there were other little things that would happen from time to time like um really minor things like I was once uh, told that one of the links on my on the website wasn't working and the email that was sent to me was you talk about equality but blah 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 the website uses a a thing to beat you with you're like yeah and I was kind of like well those two things aren't connected but thanks for letting (laughs) me know I'll go and figure out what I can do on the website um so I think I think that there's some people that are they're, they're not you know it's this hasn't been an easy project for the club and this goes mm. before before I even arrived. Like it, it's it's a challenging thing that we're doing. Otherwise other football clubs would have done it, uh, mm-hmm. would do it because we're still the only one in, in England, in, in, the, in the country, in, in Europe. Um, wow. So I think it's still like people are kind of waiting for it to fail. Like, um, yeah. you know, and, and the funny thing was that when the women's team dipped in form and they started losing games, the talk about equality stopped. It was almost like, oh, well, if the women are doing badly as well, then maybe it's not about equality. But if the women oh. were doing well and the men were doing badly, then there was kind of like, well, you know, don't like this equality, too much focus on the women's team. Mm. Um, you know, but I think the uh, sports fans are like, oh yeah like little moan (laughs) yeah yeah it's true it's true and also there's so much about identity and who you support and and it is a comfort zone because you know people tend to be fans of the teams that their families are fans of and there's like an identity and a loyalty and that's beautiful but I imagine it can create a bit of resistance to change you're messing with the brand and their identity in a way yeah yeah although I think that now that minority gets smaller and smaller every month um because i because yeah you don't you don't get loads of tweets going i love it well actually we do sorry (laughs) let me me read we get loads of messages all the time saying that people love what lewis is doing so um and that's i think why we have all these owners in 35 countries because there's lots Mm -hmm. of people you know we have a small supporters club in japan they're like wow we love this football club and what it stands for and that's exactly what i did in 2017 when i became an owner i was i was just one of those people going wow love it yeah here i I back you i'm and i'm gonna make Mm -hmm. sure you know that i back you because here's my here's my ownership but so you know I think that sometimes we can tend to focus on the negative a little bit too much and and focus on the the small minority of voices and there's maybe a little bit of suspicion or a lack of trust but and you know there's loads of things that we can improve really to to improve communication and and to to make sure that people understand why we take a stance on something when we do Mm. um and and remember so much of this is about education so much of the kind Mm of debate around sexism in sport is is education because lots of people don't don't think they are sexist and don't mean to be sexist but they are sexist and some of their actions are sexist and I think that sometimes and this is a discomfort issue but like gently being able to point that out to someone can create a huge amount of change in that individual because Mm. if it's in a confrontational or a non-confrontational way that can have an impact basically people can be willing to learn um yeah 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 it is interesting isn't it because it's it's just often uh 
this is the way we've always done it. And there's a way to call it out gently, like you said, in a way that makes them feel like, oh, this is just not how we do it anymore. In kind of a we kind of way, a way that is quite inclusive and warm and being like, you're a Lewis fan. This is the way we do it. Mm. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, it is. And, and it takes time, doesn't it? There's culture shift over time. Oh, I'm interested in also kind of being new to Lewis and the idea of wanting to make people happy because of course you always want to kill it in a new job you want everybody to be happy with you you want to get good feedback you want people to be coming with you because you're a campaigner so I guess this is a very personal question are there elements of discomfort about being maybe a people pleaser or wanting people to be happy with you when you have to make hard decisions or you have to take a stand that might not be universally loved how do you do that discomfort yourself I think that the hardest thing for me in the last 18 months has been more than 18 months now I guess but um, I think the hardest thing is just how people oriented the job is and you know how people in a job interview oh I love people I love working with Mm. people actually it's really hard and if if I could do everything all by myself sat behind a desk uh, magic you know like not having to kind of wait on or control or like whatever be controlled by or wait all that kind of stuff if if it was just down to me and I wrote some plans and we just implemented them brilliant but that's (laughs) not how it works right um but I think that you have I mean we just mentioned just the players alone in on the boys side and the girls side you know more than 100 players all of those are all of those individuals, the football club is their favorite thing to do, or it's mm. their, um, their, you know, it, it's their thing. And so if anything goes wrong, or if anything means that they don't enjoy that one thing, then they're, then that bubbles up quite quickly. And if you've got a hundred people like that and it's bubbling up, mm. there's, there's lots of uncomfortable conversations to have. I think, um, football clubs are extremely representative of a, of a, demographic and I think businesses or certainly the organizations that I've worked for only now can I appreciate just how lacking in representation they are of the world because they were Mm. highly professional environments with highly skilled highly educated people um, who are who have you know got at least a bachelor's if not a master's and maybe a doctorate Um, and it's quite a politicized environment and I think sometimes in the Mm. football club it's you've got people from all walks of life involved all kinds of demographics all kinds of educations skill sets and also like some of your most important people definitely don't have a phd they are volunteers on the gate or they are you know the 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 volunteers that um uh, come in and do the 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 bins on on the monday do you know what Mm -hmm. i mean like Mm -hmm. so that means that your way of working with people is is very different if if I've had a few times when I've had to issue disciplinaries or there's been areas of conflict that doesn't sit well with me as mm-hmm. um, like, I'm not, well, it's funny because people wouldn't necessarily think this, but I don't like conflict. And so, but I do stand up for what is right. And so, yeah. Um, yeah. so having to have those conversations being the hardest thing. And then on top of that, um, there's all these other hard conversations you have to have with players that you really, really like to tell them that, they're no longer part of your plans or mm, you're not going to yeah. renew their contract or whatever it might be. Like, how hard is that? You're telling someone you really like that you don't want them to live in this town anymore. Like, Oof. ouch. When you put yeah. it like that, that sounds like the worst part of a job ever. Like, oh my yep. God, yeah. I like you, but you don't get to live here anymore and you're fired. <laughs> and you're, yeah, and, you're, and your life is going to change after this conversation. So, wow. um, yeah. yeah, all of that is tricky. And also a lot of those conversations, I can't um, take credit is not the right phrase, but it's, it's often the manager that's dealing with the most difficult conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm involved to an extent and definitely involved in the staffing uh, decisions around that. But... Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so many moving parts in a football club because you've got, I mean, it wouldn't even be right to call fans stakeholders. They're, they're involved. They've got mm. skin in the game. You know, it's, it's their, their passion. And then you've got the players who it's their passion, but it's also their job. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. yeah, it is unlike most other jobs. Mm. So I can imagine yep. that's been an interesting one to learn to navigate because it's just very different than that sort of hierarchical organization. Yep. Boss appraisal totally. structure and systems yeah okay and it makes well, you really value good communication because I think that a lot of the problems or a lot of the 
um, bubbling up of issues or problems or challenges or disagreements or unhappiness, most of the time it's just poor communication. Mm. And I think that that's something that uh, you don't need to spend more money to improve that. And so I think that those kinds of things are things that are within mm. our realm to, to change and to moderate and to modify um, without needing investment. So yeah, with emotional intelligence and yeah. empathy and communications for influence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And understanding why people might want to have that information. Like you don't need mm. to hide stuff. Like I guess mm. there's a transparency and a clarity. And I think that's the same with the fans. Once you are transparent and clear about certain things, then you've taken away any conspiracy theory or any kind of oh, well, they've only done that because they prefer the women to the men or, you know, whatever it might be. It's yeah. um, just the clarity and communication, I think, is just so, so important. Well, and we're watching women's sports get more and more professionalized. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've I've seen this and, you know, as a former footballer, my dad is a coach. He coaches women's sports, basketball and volleyball. So watching people, they kind of like things to be a bit amateurish or they're used to female sports being managed and paid or just a little bit less than men or a lot less than men. So as you push for the professionalizing of female sports, as we see things like, you know, the Women's World Cup get higher profile, what does that mean for people's comfort zones? You know, I mean, it's I, all change is uncomfortable. So I'm just curious about that. Yeah, I think this is really important one, especially for the future. So the people we now have a growing, we've got the biggest fan base for women's football in this country, especially in England, and then, we, than we've ever had before. And the people mm. that have been fans for a long time, or even recently, they love the fact that it's more intimate than men's football. So um, 99 out of 100 times, you'll be able to go and get a selfie or an autograph or have a chat with your favorite player who played in the World Cup, you know, yeah. um, after a game. So if you go to a game, it's incredibly good value. It's so cheap, these tickets. And then you get to actually watch these incredible athletes up front and, and personal. And then at the end, have a conversation with them. That's nuts. That will yeah. change over time. Yeah. Um, with the professionalization because those players might not sometimes you know they stay out and chat for 40 minutes after a game mm-hmm. um with lewis we have a huge fan base we've got um the last time we looked at the stats like we we were beating the wsl clubs in terms of attendances wow. um and uh and we still have you know one of the uh, yeah definitely the top 20 top 15 12 i don't know in the country for attendances so we've got Notable. a local fan base yeah yes. yeah and they, and they love it and um you know our players know a lot of the fans that, and, and also because again the community is connected with the football club so our players will sometimes coach the junior players mm. um or they'll definitely show up and and give some kind of at the moment in in the global pandemic you know our first team players are giving uh kind of online zoom sessions on tactics or nutrition or like what they do you know and that's brilliant for the junior players to have someone to look up to and so the connections Mm. are quite strong and the parents will be listening in and um again just trying to bind those relationships as tight as possible Mm -hmm. um to strengthen but yeah i think that there's a lot of in in the broader element that professionalization it's really complicated. It's very difficult for us at Lewis to, um, we often feel like we're the lone voice in some conversations because we are not backed by a major Premier League men's football club. The power dynamics in some of the rooms that I'm in, um, or Zoom calls at the moment, Zoom rooms, um, Mm. the power dynamics are pretty challenging for me personally because I'll be debating Manchester City or Chelsea or Arsenal on aspects of how we want to grow and change and improve the the leagues or the competition or the governance and Mm. it'll be like me from little Lewis saying actually I don't think we should do it that way I think we should do it this way and that's I find that challenging um I am concerned that in the push to become as professional and glossy as possible as quickly as possible I do worry that we push for we'll become more dependent on men's clubs than because we need well because because those men's clubs if they want to they can invest a million pounds tomorrow okay the pandemic hasn't affected them um the pandemic has affected us because our men's team can't play and the women's team aren't allowed fans. Um, so, mm. you know, our budgets have been wrecked, but the big clubs are still getting their TV money, like hundreds of millions of pounds. Yeah. So if any of those big, so if 
if, for example, the FA is saying, well, we really want to sell this amazing product and get it on TV, but we need like all of you guys to be playing in a big stand and we need like a big ground and, you know, we need 10 TV gantries and we need like better floodlights. These are all the things that I get. Uh, uh, so, so I have been told that I need to get better floodlights. So we had to invest in floodlights over the summer. Um, I need more TV gantry spaces. Oh, okay. Okay. That's really difficult. Will I lose my license because I can't do that? Mm-hmm. So even if we win the league, I might not be able to go up a division because I don't, but the other big clubs can go, Oh, okay. Gosh, that women's team, they're asking for an extra hundred grand here for that. And they're asking for an extra and shall we do it? Shall we not? And I'm, yeah. I'm being a bit crass, but essentially the big the women's clubs that are attached to men's clubs they can advocate to that one money part whereas yeah. I have to go out elsewhere and get that cash so I have to find other sponsors other people that will back us if I only mm. had to convince the guy holding the purse strings for the men's club that I I would like that I could do it <laughs> one person yeah. brilliant bring it on but I can't yeah. I don't there is no magic money pot for me so as one of the challenges then in professionalizing the sport for females, it's that money still controls everything and access mm-hmm. and that the quality might rise, but it might be less representative or less inclusive. Is that a fair, fair? Uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, it's difficult because ultimately the FA or other people might say, yeah, do you know what, Lewis, you're doing really well, but you shouldn't be at the big girls table Mm -hmm. like to be honest like you know we really want to create the best most professional playing environments for the players and actually your training facilities are not quite up there so you don't Mm -hmm. deserve to be up there um you know people might say that Mm. but we're up there anyway (laughs) so you push the agenda you might not get asked to the prom eventually yeah i don't i don't know i think the other thing is that there's um basically we need to um, we need this to be really sustainable. So we can't just focus our attention on the top 12 clubs that are in the Super League. Because mm. there's like, let's say, I mean, you know, four four of them are in London anyway, about four of them. So you're already saying to a talented girl playing in Cornwall or Devon, sorry, you're never going to make it because you don't have a WSL club within like a few hundred miles of you. So yeah. Um, so it needs to be deep. It, it it needs to go beyond those top 12 clubs. Mm. It needs to go beyond our tier as well. But I don't know. I'm, it's not, um, I'm not being really concrete. It's just that I worry that in that speed to get a glossy product, we invest a mm. lot at the top and we we don't invest in the the middle chunk, which is your kind of pipelines for talent mm. and your pipeline for fans, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's really tricky. You see that in the success of, uh, it's an easy example because I understand it quite well, but like the success of women's soccer in the U S because of title nine. And to those of you listening yeah, who don't absolutely. know about title nine, it's a law that requires equal investment in male and female sports. And so it's created this amazing development pipeline for women's soccer, women's football in the U S because it is such a predominant sport for females in particular, mm-hmm. not so much men, but without that funding, without that development pipeline and someplace like I live in Barcelona, FC Barcelona has an incredible development program and they fund all sorts of sports and really pump money into women's sports too. But without that, yeah, you lose, you lose the talent. Girls mm-hmm. just never start playing. Right. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. you don't get to have those amazing top level women's players because they just never were there in the first place. So I get what you're saying. Sort of developing quickly, but without doing it with depth is we have this term in in campaigning about astroturfing, right? Where you sort of like fake it with grassroots. You just kind of buy the gloss, buy the illusion of it. Yeah. Or you find your one spokesperson that is representative of a continent, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. But unless you invest deeply, it's not actually a sustainable change. Yeah. That's that's a really good point. Wow, we we got there. That was a good conversation, actually. <laughs> we kind of circled around it. But yeah, it is uncomfortable to think about professionalizing without doing it right. It sort of makes you uneasy. Uh, mm. uh, yeah, uneasy because the power dynamics don't feel fair a lot of the time. Yeah, and when you think about the ownership of a lot of those big Premier League teams, they're... Uh, yeah, people who can pump a lot of money into buying expensive players or they've mm-hmm. got the TV contracts and that doesn't filter down to women in a lot of them, probably. All right, I'm waffling on, but <laughs> <laughs> I think um, yeah, we're kind of heading on to the home stretch here. 
Because I think overall, a really interesting question that I wanted to start with and we've ended up kind of ending with is what role can sports play in challenging us as individuals and a society to think about and then really face some serious issues like Mm. inequality, like the gender pay gap, like whatever. I mean, what role can sports play in particular? Yeah, I think this is the crucial thing. And this is the reason why I decided to come here to Lewis. Um, I think that when I was growing up, I kind of felt like sport was kind of not superficial, but just was like fluffy on the side. Mm. Um, And actually now I've realized that in the same way that I said to you, that the people involved in this football club are so representative of our society our local society potentially like football has this huge impact on culture in this country especially Mm. like it has a huge impact Uh, we can see that with some of the work that's been done by other um uh players whether that's on the anti-racism stances or even on the free school meals that we've uh, seen some players championing Mm. Uh, marcus rashford has just done a brilliant job um so it has this huge impact on culture And if you decide that when campaigning for social change, you will leave football to one side, sure, you'll get to your goals, but you might get there maybe 20 years later. I don't know, I've picked out 20 years, but if you include football in your theory of change, then actually you'll probably, if you you can't convince people that a game, yes, the most popular game in, in the world, the most popular game in England, if you can convince people through that, that uh women are equally deserving of value as men then you're just going to reach your goals quicker you mm. cannot separate the you can't you can't kind of separate out the the influence and the and the uh potential impact of football on culture so you know we can you can kind of do it without football but you'll be quicker if you use it as a vehicle for change i think ah uh, that's a super succinct point And I also, I love it because it's so true because it gives you reach into, you've touched on this earlier, such a range of demographics because it really does often really cut through, you know, sort of we talk about demographics and sort of socioeconomic status and where people live, but you've got people in 35 countries Mm. supporting you. You've got women and yeah, you've got reach into so many different parts of society. And if you can bring them with you. You're going to do anything you want to do faster. Yeah, and that's and that's our demographics. But then if you think about it, the, the time that I take the most flack on social media, for example, is on the FA Cup equal prize money because I mm. put out an opinion. Um, I put out argument. I put out some research. Um, and I make the case that the prize money gap should be minim- minimized. Um, and then I'll have like a barrage of people telling me I'm stupid, which which um, which I don't I don't really care about I find interesting um and uh I think that is like every so often well not every so often you'll get a fair number of people going I think I get where you're coming from but I don't understand this and then I'll bother to respond to those to those people because they're not telling me that I'm stupid um and and I'll try and explain things and you can see that some people are trying to figure it out and they're kind of like yeah but don't the men make more money don't they deserve more uh, like more money because of that and I'm like okay fair let's have this conversation let's have this this debate and you know then I'll start a conversation about well the investment how much investment do you put in men's how much investment do you put in women's okay so then we see that the return mm-hmm. on investment for the men is this the return on investment for this this women so you know or I'll talk about like all kinds of things I don't know you have to invest in a product for it to give you a return, right? Yeah, like you can't talk about the different quality of women's and men's if you're not investing equally in women's. They haven't even gotten a fighting chance before. Yeah, Yeah. so so you can have all of those uncomfortable conversations and sometimes those are Mm. with your friends and sometimes those are with your, and in fact, some of the hardest, most uncomfortable conversations probably I've ever had have been with friends and family who are not aligned with you and <laughs> you know I don't care if someone online tells me I'm stupid um it doesn't it doesn't affect me whereas if I'm having a discussion or a debate with someone who I'm close to and they they don't get it then that's a bit harder and that that whole discomfort thing I think is and you know putting your head above the parapet and um all of those things which your your podcast touches on around being 
brave, I guess, and mm. um, the, the hardest time to do it, but the most necessary time to do it is not online. It's not on social media. It's not in a policy brief or in a, a blog. It's not in a, a, an article in a newspaper. It's calling someone out face-to-face, someone that you might like. Um, yeah. And and I, I think, you know, the times I've done that, I've hated it, but that person at times sometimes will kind of hate me or whatever or go away or just think whatever but then other (laughs) times they might be like oh yeah actually maybe I shouldn't say to my son to stop throwing like a girl because actually that is a bit weird um or maybe Mm. maybe do you know like it it's all those small things I think probably I have um maybe help to modify people's language or maybe I've encouraged someone to take their kids to go and watch a women's game rather than just a men's game just like Mm -hmm. those small little behavioral changes um I think are the ones that we can cause individually as individual people making brave choices to actually just cut in and go hey do you mind do you mind not using that language or do you know what that's quite insensitive or um mate don't don't use that that word um, mm. And I think those are the things that everyone, personally, I think that everyone has a responsibility to to do that. And it's not nice. It's not fun. But you change someone's perspective when you do it. This may be a question you choose to not answer. But as a fellow mm, focused female leader, do you get treated differently as a female general manager? Do people react when you are assertive or do they treat you like you can't act a certain way as a woman? Uh, you know, just sort of that label that we get of being bitchy rather than if you were a man, you'd be assertive. You'd, mm. get, you'd be getting stuff done rather than being bossy. I don't know if you want to talk about this, but is it is there an element of that in your work at all? Have you encountered that at all? No, I think, no, I think, well, obviously the last almost a year we've been in lockdown. So I'm not necessarily in a room with people who might patronize me or um, think I'm not up to scratch. I don't know. Um, Definitely, definitely people can be a little bit patronizing. Oh, that's nice. Oh, you're interested in football. And I'm like, oh, I'm the general manager of a football club. Oh, so do you (laughs) like it then? You know, sometimes you get that kind of, (laughs) you get that kind of thing. Um, I mean, I've been, I've been mistaken for the coffee girl at conferences before, not necessarily in a football environment, but even just in a, in a work environment. Oh yeah. Um, There's lots of small little things like that. Although uh, honestly, in, in, the league that I'm in and in the WSL here in, in England, you know, we're probably about 50, 50 in terms of female general. So I think in our normal week to week meetings, there's, there's definitely no, um, no reason that for someone treating you, you differently. Uh, I think it's more in, in other settings, you'll, you'll see it. I think sometimes if you bring an opinion, people kind of devalue it either because, well, because of lots of things, really. But um, I think sometimes people assume that if you're working in women's football, it's kind of that that B version. It's not it's not really uh, working in football. It's uh, OK. So dabbling. it's about, <laughs> yeah, you're dabbling. You're just like, oh, isn't that cute? Uh, yeah. OK. Interesting. I wondered about that. Yeah, but not okay. hugely like it's um, and in my in my football club here at Lewis, it goes without saying, you know, there's nothing other than respect. You know, my directors are are brilliant and I've never felt so uh enabled to and in, empowered I guess to plot on with my kind of direction for change so yeah what a brilliant answer and a brilliant reality I'm actually really thrilled that you chose to answer that and that the answer was so I feel better about the world knowing that you get <laughs> to be a strong female leader who's completely supported mm-hmm. in an environment you would assume is very male and might be a little bit condescending or even undermining but not nah, not at all and and I won't even ask if that's reflective of Lewis FC or the wider world, because it's probably a bit a bit more Lewis FC than the wider world. But may that culture shift spread, because that that's great. I'm really glad to know that. Yeah. All right. Final question I always ask, which is, what do you think people need to be uncomfortable about? Oh, I think I think just what I said a moment ago, probably, is um, they need to uh, is this the right way of answering? I'm not too sure. That that idea of actually, when you see something you don't like, just saying something. And I think for me, it's little things like uh, 
guys in a bar making like stupid comments about women just like just be that person that goes hey mate just leave it out like leave her alone like I think I think those things are really important and might make you feel really uncomfortable if it's your friends that you're just like mate um I think that we have that as a as a duty and um Mm. and it's not you don't have to have a master's degree in gender studies do you you just have to go leave out (laughs) all those little things around language I think uh, they're really really important um this has come up so many times in past interviews I've done with people who identify as gender fluid or language is important language Mm -hmm. is so important and so I guess your message is if you're uncomfortable feel that discomfort and then do something about it anyway yeah and mm. it doesn't you don't have to it doesn't have to be a massive thing you don't have to go on a rant you don't have to just say something in the moment because that's better than like bottling it up for putting out on twitter later like just just say something <laughs> yeah or just sort of letting things that aren't really nice fly as something that is okay in society we're like nah we don't do that anymore we don't talk like that the, yeah. i'll give you i'll give you an example of something really quickly <laughs> i was at um uh at this end of season I was the plus one so I was with my partner um and it was like everyone was kind of at this end of season party and we all sat around on tables and uh, there was one guy that just you know you're in a circle so everyone can be part of the same conversation and he just went mate uh are you and your bird going somewhere nice on holiday I can't remember exactly what the question was and the his his girlfriend was right there so I was, I was just like, what? <laughs> this guy is asking, like, if you don't know her name, just say, are you in, are you, sorry, I've forgotten your name. Or are you and your girlfriend? Are you, are you guys, are you guys good? There's a million ways that you could ask that question, <laughs> but like on the table and no one said anything. And I was like, and I was like, I was the one person that didn't know anyone. And I just said, look, she's not a bird. You can probably rephrase. Everyone got awkward. Um, but like you can't let that drop right and and the girl was actually was actually sat next to me and she just gone really quiet didn't say anything um and then eventually it was like you know there was an awkward silence and and then just like carried on the conversation (laughs) the guy was obviously trying not to lose face from the fact that I had said something and anyway it got back to normal conversation and the girl just said to me thank you so much for saying that Uh. And, and I was just I was just like, I was, you know, it's just one of those little things where you're like, it, that, it was just rude, right? There was no, yeah, it's dehumanizing. It. But, but I was the one person that didn't know anyone around that table. So I was just like, you know, and I'm not sure whether my partner was, I don't know. I don't know how he felt about it. He's very good in these situations. He, he might've said something himself, but uh, it, those, those kinds of things like you just kind of have to say something, don't you? Yeah, totally. And the more allies we can have on this, the better. So yeah. But maybe it was easier because you didn't know anybody. You were like, I've got nothing to lose here. I'm just going to say it rather than... Yeah, I felt like I did have something to lose though because I didn't want to be the person that embarrassed my partner or like, you know. Yeah, Yeah. but But yeah, yeah, you see that discomfort and you step right over it, Maggie. I like it. (laughs) You charge for it. You go for it. But that is what I love about... But remember, I'm non-confrontational. Like that that wasn't pleasant for me to do. I didn't want to do it. it but I th- again it's that values thing if someone's being disrespected she was right there she yeah. was right there yeah if she was not there maybe at that time I'd have been like oh that guy's a little bit of a dick but yeah. like I maybe but she was she was being disrespected right like directly there. So, next to you yeah. yeah so maybe that was like maybe that was part of it that that was the value that was my value there that was being compromised at that particular time well do you have like so i have this visceral physical feeling because i'm non confrontational as well which a lot of people would not believe but i literally have this feeling that starts from my belly and just comes all the way up through my chest when i'm just like that is not right i cannot hold back i have to do or say mm. something that yeah. anger that you talked about yeah, and yeah just being like I don't, I don't, I'm not doing this to be nasty. I'm not doing this to score any points. I just cannot not let this come out because I know my values and I'm, I've worked so hard to live in alignment with them and to work in alignment with them. And so I think that makes it easier to just be like, I can listen to myself. I trust myself and yeah. I can't not say something. 
And that's why I'll find it much more hard. Uh, it will be much harder for me to send back food in a restaurant. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But if you if, if something like that happens, then yeah, that's uh, I'll speak out on that. <laughs> like, oh, this chicken is not to my liking, but I am. I'm just going to eat it anyway. Yeah, but exactly. if you don't get their pronouns right, yeah, I know. <laughs> that you know, we all have our things to work on. Oh. <laughs> uh, Maggie, it's been such a treat to talk to you. Thank you so much for your time, your insight, and good luck in your next season. Thank good luck you. In the mission that you and the club are pushing in the world, standing for. Congratulations on your new sponsorship. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, really looking forward to seeing where the club goes, where female football goes, soccer, because it's exciting. We're at a time of real change and and women really stepping to their power, I think. Mm. And this is just sort of tip of the iceberg I hope definitely thank you thank you for having me on thank you thank you to my team who helped me produce this podcast to my brilliant editor Dimitar Svedkov to Thomas Sheffer for the original music and to Luis Amaro for the original artwork if you enjoy this podcast you can help me reach new listeners by leaving me a five-star and written review on Apple Podcasts following me on Spotify or anywhere else you love to listen to podcasts you can also follow me on Instagram at the Betsy Reed. That's B-E-T-S-Y-R-E-E-D. If you're interested in bonus episodes and guided meditations I record regularly, head over to patreon.com and become a supporter. For the price of a coffee each month, you get access to a community. So there's really only one thing left to say. Thank you for spending time with me. Stay uncomfortable. <laughs>